text this morning is in Mark 3, verses 20 through 35. And if you're using the, uh, the Blue Bible in the chairs in front of you or behind, whatever, uh, I'll be starting on page 929. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebub, and by the prince of demons, he cast out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is decided, uh, divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they went to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Blessed be the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated, and thank you, Sue, for reading that. I hope you will keep your Bibles open with us today. If you do not have a Bible, take that as a gift from our church. We, again, want you to have a copy of God's Word. Um, and I want you, again, to keep that Word open to make sure I'm not just inventing this stuff on the spot, particularly today. Again, if you are just now logging on with us or just now arriving at our service, I, um, my name is Evan Skelton, and I'm the pastor here at Bayless. And I just am, it is really good to be with you today, particularly because if you are not aware, last week we had to uh, pivot um, last minute and go online. And uh, good work on all of those who did with, the, with like less than 24 hours notice. I, I particularly want to thank Caleb um, and our team last week who helped to move everything online for us as I um, was sick enough to uh, say that we just needed to be careful and err on the side of caution and care for our neighborhood and you well. Um, and it turns out those concerns were unwarranted. 
which I'm really grateful. So obviously I'm back here feeling much better. So glad to see you all today. Um, again, I'm just, I think perhaps because we had an online service last week, which is just the worst. Let's just own it. It's the worst, okay? It's, God has meant the church to be an in-person thing. And so it's just, I, I am reminded of the supernatural things he really is doing among you today. And we're going to be in Mark chapter 3. Um, in God's Word. And I think, it, well, we, I know, again, reading the Bible, it's because we are responding to God's Word, hearing that Word this morning that God is really changing all of us, particularly me. Um, but I, we're going to see in Mark chapter 3, as we always will, um, about the good news of Jesus, and particularly about how Jesus changes all of life, absolutely all of it. Before we do, I'm aware, uh, more than aware, that we have people who are joining us in person or online, who are in a variety of different places spiritually. Um, we uh, have some who are openly skeptical towards church and others who are, I mean, if you're honest, you're, you have no idea where you're at in your relationship with God. And maybe this describes you. And we really are so glad, honestly, that you are here. You know why? Because I, I find that my relationships with those who are skeptical and searching, often I'm able to have really honest, uh, genuine, um, and, oft, and uh, usually respectful conversations about things that really do matter without having to pretend that we are all on the same page about it. That being said, uh, the challenge, one of the true challenges for me as a pastor is not interacting with genuine doubts or skepticism. One of the biggest challenges I face is pastoring those who think that they are Christians and may not be. In fact, today we're going to look at a rather startling claim from Jesus, that there are some that think that they are on the inside when it comes to God and are actually on the outside. Again, over and over in Jesus' ministry, he seems to shock those around them by saying that you can appear to be very close to God. You can actually think you are very close to God, and you're actually very, very far away. The more that we consider this claim that Jesus is going to make, the more that we hear him seriously, the more that I, I, don't, I not only think this can rattle us, I think it should rattle us. Whether this is your first time at Bayless, or it's your 500th time at Bayless. I, I, again, we're going to be listening in on Jesus himself as he gives an honest look at those who I'm going to refer to as the outside insiders. The outside insiders. And along the way, we're going to look at three questions to understand what Jesus means. We're going to look at first, who are those on the outside, according to Jesus? Why are they on the outside? And who is on the inside, according to Jesus. So let's go ahead and get to work. Um, I hope you will, again, have your Bibles open as we look at number one, who is on the outside, Mark chapter 3. Now, I don't know about you, but in school, I desperately, and I mean desperately wanted to be on the in crowd. Anybody like me wanted to be in the in crowd? Uh, I remember particularly in high school that I tried um, to, uh, I, I, when I first started high school, I uh, broke off relationships with a particular friend group that I had had for years of my life. Many of these friends were, I mean, we just were really close, but because I was sick of hanging out with the nerds. And uh, if you know anything about me, you're going to know how ironic this is because this is coming from the guy who owns about 50 board games and knows every line from Lord of the Rings. <laughs> so this, I, I tried to leave this behind me because I wanted to be in the in crowd. Now, C.S. Lewis makes this point 
that it's uh, at some point in our lives, all of us face this desire to be, that we want to be on the inner circle. We want to be on the inside. We want to be, as he puts it, among the people who know. And it doesn't have to just be the in crowd at school, although many of us students out there and kiddos, you know what it feels like, that kind of peer pressure. But many adults know that that doesn't stop once you become an adult. There are, there's an inner circle at work often among coworkers. There can be an inner circle in your community. There can sometimes even be, if we're honest, an inner circle in our families. You know, I find that this uh, desire to be in the in crowd can happen spiritually, too, even in the church. And indeed, I see it happen all the time. In fact, many of us, we want to know, we want to know that we're on the inside track when it comes to God. In fact, if I was to ask you, what does it look like to be on the, in the inner circle when it comes to faith, what would you say? And more importantly, are you in this inner circle? Mark 3, verse 20 through 35, we find two audiences that assume they are in the inner circle when it comes to God. They assume they are part of the inner ring. And they're going to assume for a couple different reasons. We're going to look at each of these reasons, but it turns out that both of them are equally wrong. Let's look at the first assumption. The first assumption that these audiences that Jesus is interacting with make is that they have special access. Special access. Our passage, I'm going to take this off again. If you see a hello tag, this is just indicates somebody you can ask questions to if you want to know where the bathroom is or how you become a member. So you can just grab some, somebody who's holding a hello tag. But nonetheless, we are, we, our passage begins this week uh, by, with a mention of Jesus's uh, family. For the very first time in Mark's gospel, may, may not have given much attention to this, but Jesus as fully God and fully man actually had a human family. And here we hear from uh, Jesus's mother and his half-brothers. Um, we say half-brothers because they share the same uh, mother, but according to the Bible, Jesus does not have the same father. They, they, their father is Joseph. Joseph is not technically the biological father of Jesus. He's an adoptive father, if you will. It says that Jesus, unlike any other human being, was specially conceived by the Holy Spirit while Mary was still a virgin. But that's for free. Let's, let's get back to the passage. The half-brothers and Mary come up to, uh, to uh, Jesus. Um, and can I uh, just ask, um, do you, have you ever thought about what it would have been like to be one of Jesus' siblings and how miserable that would have been? I mean, you could literally not blame anything on him unless you wanted mom and dad to laugh at you. I mean, like, can you picture going up to Mary and Joseph and like, okay, let's just run this back. Let's be serious here. You're, you're blaming this whole thing on on, on Jesus? I mean, it would have been so frustrating to be one of his siblings, let alone now Jesus has left the family carpenter shop and begun a public mis- ministry in which he is doing things that he probably has never done growing up. He's healing, and he's claiming the kind of authority that only belongs to God himself, and a serious family rift has been revealed when he begins to do so. Maybe you can picture the conversation between two of his brothers, James and Jude, two brothers we know about in the New Testament. Jude, have you heard what Jesus is saying? I mean, I, I know mom had this vision about him when he, we were younger, and when he was younger, but I, you know, when he, we all know that he was, he's, he's the special kid, but have you heard the things that he's claiming? 
He's saying that he has authority over the Sabbath, and, and he's even hanging out with tax collectors of all people. Perhaps Jude pipes up, bro, you have no idea. I, he has been claiming the authority even to forgive sins. I don't care how big the crowds are getting at this point. I think we can all agree the attention has started to go, go, go to his head, and I'm worried about him. Let's face it, he's starting to make us look bad, let alone mom. He's out of his blooming mind, and somebody has to say something. I mean, what would you do if one of your family members all of a sudden started saying that they are on a special mission from the Lord? Would you think that they were at least one fry short of a Happy Meal? What would you do if, you're, if this began to happen in your family? The brothers begin to head off to bring their brother, their crazy brother, back home by force if necessary, perhaps dragging their poor mother behind. An intervention needs to happen before Jesus makes his situation only worse. And if Jesus is going to listen to anyone, right, it's going to be his family. One of the marks of outside insiders is that they assume they have special access to Jesus, the kind of access that demands Jesus' attention. Outside insiders assume, well, of course God would listen to me. Surely none of us are blood relatives of Jesus, but still I have seen religious people do the very same thing. They assume that they are in the inner circle because they grew up in church or members of a particular congregation or were baptized when they were young. They've got the date to prove it in their Bible or they give so much to the church every month. In fact, I'll never forget um, that I, was, I, I asked one particular woman of a church that I pastored, um, tell me, how did you become a Christian? She looked at me very confused. Okay, let me ask the question again. When did you put your faith in Jesus? She looked at me again, even more confused. Pastor, I'm not sure I understand the question. You see, I've always been a Baptist. Some of us, and that's the correct response, by the way, some of us, honestly, haven't given much thought to the fact that we might not be on the inside after all. We have assumed that because we see ourselves as a church person or because our friends are Christians, or perhaps because we married a Christian, that makes us one too. Surely that makes us better, more uh, closer to God than most. Some of us imagine that our, per our performance or our relationships give us special access to God, and just like Jesus' family, we might be surprised to find out the truth. The second audience that Jesus butts heads with uh, they assume, make a, sec a, a different assumption. They, may, uh, they assume not special access, but special knowledge. Special knowledge. In verse 22, we encounter a group called the scribes, experts in Jewish law, who along with the Pharisees seem to haunt Jesus um, at every step of his ministry. Every time he gets up to teach, there they are opposing him. You can almost feel like Jesus at this point sees them on the outside of the crowd and just begins to almost begin to add the clarifier. Let me, let me guess, what I'm saying here, it, it offends you. I mean, these scribes, they, they are not fans of Jesus, but Mark tells us something different about these particular, these, these scribes. These scribes have come from Jerusalem. Now, this is not just a geeky fact. You see, in the, these weren't just the local leaders in Capernaum who have come up. Jerusalem was the center of Israel. It was the center of Israel's authority, particularly the Sanhedrin would rule from there, their ruling governing council. And it seems that Jesus 
has become such a controversial figure, such a controversial figure, that an official task force from Jerusalem needs to be sent from, uh, again, from the city to evaluate him. Like a state official might be sent to examine the extent of an outbreak. These scribes have been sent to determine just how bad the damage was. In fact, they were sent to see if they would deliver an official condemnation of all of the city. Call Capernaum if it needed to be labeled a city under seduction. A city under seduction. This would be an official label in which uh, the Jewish authorities would say that city, in a sense, is entirely unclean. We need to give it particular attention and we need to decide who are the instigators who are bound up with them as fellow compromisers, and who are the innocent bystanders. This was a huge deal. And now even in a short time they spent watching Jesus, they could see that the legitimacy of their concern. This man was a troublemaker, and at worst, he was a heretic. But they also couldn't deny the kind of power that Jesus had. I mean, this wasn't just some charlatan performing magic tricks in front of everyone. There was truly something supernatural about what he was doing that they could not deny. Now, of course, they knew that he couldn't be who he claimed to be. I mean, he couldn't be sent from God, possessing, let alone God's same authority. I mean, of course, how in the world could that be true? If that was true, surely he would look and talk a lot more like they did. Therefore, there must be some other explanation than the one that Jesus is offering them. Now, we're going to look at Jesus' response to them just in a second, and it's enormously important. But notice how the scribes and the Pharisees assume that they have the inside scoop when it comes to God. They are the objective ones. They understand God, clearly more so than Jesus does. And there has to be, has to be another explanation for what he is doing than what he claims. Again, I see people do this all the time, and they don't have to be religious. In fact, I've seen many non-believing people, non-Christians, even close friends who seem to have one argument after another, after another against the Bible. And just as we, again, often have conversations about these questions, it seems that that reminds them of another question, and of another question, and of another Now, one of the most important priorities that a Christian can have is in listening to the questions, the doubts, even the baggage of those that we love, those who are around us, without simply just thinking about what we're going to respond with or what we're going to to argue back with, to seek understanding with those who are around us before even we seek to be understood. One of the best ways we can love people is by taking, again, their questions and doubts seriously. Again, many of us have had them. But still, I have met many people that have built up a wall of accumulated questions and opposition which keeps them from ever having to wonder if they might be wrong about God. This wall keeps them safe in the same way that some Christians might insulate themselves in a Christian bubble so they don't have to be around those who disagree with them. When it comes to it, I have met many who aren't really looking for answers Honestly, they already know what they think. And no matter the evidence, they're going to find a way to explain around it. Friend, let me ask you, if you're not a Christian, again, I am really glad that you're here. What would it take for you to change your mind about Jesus? You know, some of us might say, 
if only I could see some clear signs, if only God would show up in some undeniable way, then, then I would believe. But then let's consider our context, right? Doesn't our passage show us that Jesus's miracles aren't enough? These skeptics find a reason to explain even miracles away. And if we're honest, we are not so different. For some of us, asking what it would take to change our minds about Jesus is like asking us uh, what, what it would take for us to be convinced that the earth was flat. It's ridiculous. Of course that couldn't be true. Of course it can't be. I have to tell you, you know, faith, the nature of faith, it's not an automatic or inevitable consequence when we have all of our questions answered, friends. It's not an inevitable consequence once you finally have all of your doubts addressed. Perhaps, friend, you need to begin by doubting your doubts. Now, some of us, we do have some significant roadblocks that keep, makes this even too difficult to, to talk about Christianity. Again, I would encourage you, find a Christian that you love, begin to, who will hear you out, and begin to work through these questions seriously, recognizing when you begin to just look for more reasons not to believe. But if there are really big questions and doubts, I would love to meet with you, and many in our church would. If you don't know anyone you can trust, who you can talk about these things with, begin to get to know people here. But could it be that you've already made up your mind without realizing it? That you've built up a wall that keeps you from considering you might be wrong. You might not be as objective as you think you are. Outsiders... Outside insiders, I should say, outside insiders, they assume special access and special knowledge. And so they end up on the outside. But that leads to our second question. Why are they on the outside? Now, this is when we get into the really juicy stuff, friends. I'm really excited, actually, to look at this together. But I have to tell you, um, whether as a pastor or a professor— one of the most common questions that I hear from Christians has to do with the so-called unforgivable sin. So, in fact, I hear Christians almost like, they like say it in a whisper, the unforgivable sin. Almost like as if they say it, it's like to commit it. Okay, we're going to talk, if we can, a little bit about what in the world is the unforgivable sin. And trust me, it's related to what we're talking about, about what it means to be an outside insider. But in order to do that, we have to look at two, we have to actually ask two more questions within this one. And the first is, is what in the world is this unforgivable sin? Well, let's look at verse 28 and 29 together, if you would. These verses, I'm going to read them one more time. Truly I say to you, and this is Jesus speaking, truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies, blasphemies they utter, but Whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Sin, sin, sin. This is really intense, isn't it? Jesus seems to say that there's a kind of sin for which there is no forgiveness, either in this life or the next. I tell you, tell you what, those of us who imagine this perpetually smiling Jesus leading sheep through meadows, brushing back his golden hair and saying something like, all you need is love, we need to read passages like this one and have that fill out that perspective. So what is this unforgivable sin? Is it rooting for the cubs? Some of us might say so. Is it getting a tattoo? Is it voting for Biden? Is it voting for Trump? 
Is it murder? Is it suicide? According to this passage, at least, it is something called blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, which I realize is not exactly all that helpful. What in the world is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? So often in the Bible, to understand what we are reading, we need to keep reading. We need to look and see if the author themselves helps us to understand the context, gives us any clues. And it turns out this author has. Jesus has. Let me summarize the events again. The scribes, these Jewish scholars, have already determined that Jesus is not someone who can be trusted. And yet, if he is disrespecting God like they think that he is, then how in the world can he be performing miracles? Surely it can't be by God's power. Where in the world is he getting this power from? Well, they argue there really is only one solution then. He's getting his power from another spiritual power, from the devil himself, who our passage calls Beelzebul. Fascinatingly, Jesus does not let this accusation lie. Now, they're not exactly saying this to his face, but you can, you can hear him say, okay, come here, come here. I want you to come talk to me about this. They come up front, and he leads into this, truly I say to you, this is really important about what comes next. He calls them over and tells them in no uncertain terms, that is absolutely ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. Why would Satan fight against Satan? Think about it. Jesus is casting out demons, which are the footholds of dark spiritual power in the world, and it only takes brief consideration to see that casting out demons would work against the prince of demons, right? In fact, Jesus' Jesus's actions, don't they prove that he is stronger than Beelzebul? Why in the world would he need power from Satan, in other words, if he was already more powerful than Satan? This is Jesus' again is saying that this accusation, this line of reasoning is absolutely ridiculous. But you see, they've already made up their minds about Jesus. And to, inv- to avoid his call to repentance and faith, to avoid Jesus' conclusions and taking them seriously, the scribes are willing to accept even the most paper-thin solution to justify themselves. It would be one thing to dismiss the claims of Jesus without having seen the signs of power to back them up. But now, now they are looking at the inbreaking of God's power and presence, clear signs of the Spirit of God, the signs of who Jesus is, and the signs that he is who he says he is, and they are calling it something else. This is obstinate disbelief. Refusal to believe regardless of the evidence And the very reason it cannot be forgiven, and this is really important that we get this, the very reason that it cannot be forgiven because this kind of sin does not seek forgiveness. The very reason it cannot be forgiven is because this particular sin does not seek forgiveness. Sam Storms, who is a biblical scholar, uh, writes this way, This was not a one-time momentary slip or inadvertent mistake in judgment, but a persistent, lifelong rebellion in the face of inescapable truth. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is not a careless act, but a callous attitude. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, therefore, is not just unbelief, but unashamed unbelief that arises not from ignorance of what is true, but in defiance 
of what one knows beyond doubt to be true. This is not mere denial, but determined denial. Not mere rejection, but wanton, wicked, willful, wide-eyed rejection. Question is, is Jesus the only one to talk about this? Well, no. Author of Hebrews and John and his and First John in his letter speak of this kind of sin as well. In Hebrews, I just want to look at one of these. In Hebrews chapter ten, it says, "If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving knowledge of the truth, there's there is no long there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins." Again, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. All that being said, perhaps the more pressing question for us is not what is the unforgivable sin, but have I committed the unforgivable sin? Sam Storms points out something I have observed as well. Again, this scholar. Many Christians live in a constant and paralyzing fear that they have committed the unpardonable sin. They are burdened and broken and grieved and terrified that some sinful habit they cannot break or some reoccurring transgression they cannot avoid will forever exclude them from the presence of God. Their confidence is shattered and their assurance of salvation is all but lost. Now, I've not been a pastor long, but I've been a pastor long enough to know many of us struggle with that. In fact, even over the last few months, I've talked with those who wonder if they have committed so-called this, this so-called eternal sin, if they are beyond hope. Perhaps some of you here are wondering that. What do we make of this? First, I need to remind you, I need to remind us that this sin, particularly if we've understood it correctly, is belligerent disbelief. It is hardening your heart against God, against the work of the Holy Spirit, and against the provision of Christ as Savior. And the reason it cannot be forgiven is because that kind of heart is not coming to God for forgiveness to begin with. This means that most likely those of you who are afraid that you have committed it have not. Those who are worried about falling into that kind of unbelief, I have to tell you, are demonstrating, at least in some measure, a kind of belief. Let me ask you, do you really believe that you are worse off in your sin than you have ever dared to admit, but because of what Jesus has accomplished on the cross and in his resurrection, that you are more loved than you ever dared hope? Do you, is your faith alone in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins? Do you want Jesus more than your life of sin? Take comfort if that's true of you. If so, you are bound up with Christ. You are not saved by the strength of your faith. You are saved by the strength of the one your faith is in, friends. Can I get an amen on that? Are you, you are not saved by the strength of your faith. You're saved by the strength of the one your faith is in. If you are concerned about that you have committed this sin, you're considered that God might leave you behind. Again, do you believe the gospel to be true? If you do, there is great comfort to be had. There is no record, hear this, in the Bible of anyone being denied forgiveness who comes to God to ask for it. Don't miss, after all, the wonderful assurance that Jesus gives in verse 28. What does he say? All sins, all sins will be forgiven from those who ask or seek forgiveness. 1 John puts it this way, 
verse nine, in chapter 1, verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Is that good news? But then I do need to address those who have never wondered if they might be saved. Those who have assumed that their church attendance, their moral performance, or simply hanging around with Christians is enough to square them with God. Friend, if you are merely riding the coattails of another's faith, whether your parents or your spouses or your pastors, I am very nervous for you. More nervous for you than I am about the one who is conflicted consistently about their faith. Again, I have to tell you, you aren't simply born into Christianity. Whether or not you consider yourself a Baptist, that doesn't save you either. Neither can you perform your way in. If you have never personally come to heartbreak and repentance over your sin and then turned in desperate faith to Jesus because he's all you've got. If you remain calloused to Jesus and his claim upon your life, you will be guilty of an eternal sin. You may find Jesus say to you, even if you've been in church your whole life, If you've not come to faith in the gospel, you will hear from Jesus, depart from me, I never knew you. The reason these kind of insiders are on the outside is because they come to Jesus only as teacher or as brother. They do not come to him as Savior and Lord, which is all that Jesus would accept. Perhaps for the first time, if you're honest, you find yourself in this kind of apathetic place, realizing for the first time you're not actually sure that you have a relationship with Jesus that you've so surrounded yourself with religious activity or arguments against Christianity that you have never had to think about it seriously. Friend, let me encourage you, pull on that thread. That may be the Holy Spirit calling out to you, either to faith for the very first time or to again turn and trust to Christ alone. God is calling to you and what you need to hear is not another message of try harder do better what you need to hear is that you are saved by grace alone through faith alone in christ alone i don't care how long you have been pretending turn in faith and repentance to jesus only he can save the rebels and the religious from themselves This leads to our last question, who is on the inside? Let's consider again Jesus' family. What may not stand out to us is that family was everything in a culture like this one. Your career, your social circle, your very identity was bound up with your blood relations. And yet in verse 31, we find Jesus giving his family basically a spiritual Heisman. That's like the only sports illustration you'll get from me, okay? So like the stiff arm to his family, all right? I'm not even sure I did that right. But here, the, again, his, Jesus' siblings are trying to get to Jesus. They're b- trying to bring their crazy brother home, and they've dragged their mom along. After all, who can turn down mama? But having arrived where Jesus was staying, they are unable to get through the crowds. And so they send word, hey, tell, tell Jesus, hey, your mother and brothers are here. Word makes it through, comes to Jesus, and what does Jesus respond? How does he respond when he's made aware? Who are my mother and brothers? Yikes. And you can imagine the people around the room just get real quiet. Like, did you hear what he just said? Who are your mother and brothers? What is Jesus saying exactly? Two things, I think. First, 
our truest family, is not physical. It's spiritual. I realize some of us are very close with our family. Perhaps a bit too close. I mean, you do everything together, right? I mean, everything together with, uh, with, your, with your family. While others of us could not be more distant from our family. You're embarrassed by them. Perhaps you're even wounded by them. You'll see them at Christmas, but other than that, you may not want anything to do with your family. Whether you're close or you're distant to your physical family, Jesus completely redefines what family is. His family belongs to him by faith. My mom experienced this actually after she became a Christian. Her physical family rejected her in many ways when she put her faith in Jesus. But then she came to find that sense of family really for the very first time, you know where? In the church. Welcomed in by a new family that were connected by something more binding than race, than blood, than political party or common interest. If you are a Christian, you have been welcomed into that kind of family. Friend, is this your attitude towards this local church, to the members of it? Or are you cold and indifferent to those that Jesus calls your brothers and sisters? Do you seek to know, to love, to sacrifice for this family as if it was your family, even if it is awkward or costs you something? Who are you risking for even now, trying to get to know that's not currently in your friend circle? Are you as committed to this family as if it was your family, even if your preferences aren't always met? But this isn't the only thing that Jesus is saying. He's saying that his family is known by their faith. Now, please don't hear from me that you need to break up with your physical family to be loyal to God. That is not what I'm saying. Some of you wish that I was, to be honest. No, what, I'm, what I am saying, in fact, is that your family does matter. It's the primary context for you to make disciples of all nations. That's where we start. But still, Jesus redefines who our truest family is as those who do the will of God. This doesn't refer too, so much to uh, conforming our life to a set of rules as much as it means conforming our life to a certain Savior who is also called our brother, In fact, Jesus will say elsewhere in Matthew chapter 10, verse 37, whoever loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Friends, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who believe they have some claim on Jesus and those who allow Jesus to have his claim on them those who stand to their feet in rejection, and those who sit in his, at, at his feet and worship, those who insist on their will or surrender to his will, those outside Jesus' house and those within. Again, there are many kind and moral, even many religious people that nonetheless may find themselves surprised on where they stand. What about you? Where are you at? Are you resting on your personal integrity or your religious background to keep God happy? Are you searching for the truth God offers or have you already made, your, made up your mind simply looking for new excuses to keep God at a distance? Is it possible that you could have gone your whole life assuming that you're close to God while you may not belong to his family at all? Or for those of us who are conflicted, again, is your faith in the gospel for your forgiveness? Do you need to rest 
again, in the assurance that you are not saved by the strength of your faith, but the strength of the one your faith is in. I want us to hear once more Jesus' appeal from Mark chapter 1, and then I want to pray. Verse 15, the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Lord, this is weighty. I mean, this is not particularly a fun passage to work through, but we know out of love that you warn us. In fact, you, you call us to, you give a really strong warning to these religious people because and compassion you are calling them to actually, to salvation, the salvation they've took, taken as assumed their whole life. Even as some of us may feel uncomfortable by your words, I pray that that discomfort either leads us to greater confidence in the gospel itself or causes us to realize that we've, we've never actually believed in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins. We've simply been resting on the coattails of somebody else. Lord, we pray that whether this is our first or 500th time to this church, that all of us would confess our allegiance to Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins or take the next step in beginning to consider if we might be wrong about him. The only hope comes from your clear word and your glorious grace, which saves rebels and religious from themselves. We pray that this church would reflect it and that I might walk in step with it. We pray for Christ's sake. Amen. Amen.